Hey, Connectors! Happy Holidays from Connected the Podcast. This is a pretty exciting episode for me, and I guess it's like a holiday gift from me to you. This is the last episode of Connected the Podcast in Louisiana. But have no fear, we're off to Indiana, Hoosier land. So all of you Hoosier artists, or if you know of an artist in Indiana, connect with me. I want to connect with you. Also, in this episode, I am connecting with my mentor, five-time Grammy Award-winning producer, the one who produced At Last. That's right, Etta James At Last, John Snyder. Well, enough talking for me. You know what to do. Sit back, relax, do what you do, whatever you do while listening to a podcast, and let's get connected. Professor John Snyder, thank you so much for having me here in your office at Loyola University, and welcome to Connected the Podcast. Well, thank you, Lexi. It's nice to see you again and to be with you. Thank you. Y'all, I am so excited. I am sitting with Professor John Snyder. He's a record producer, five-time Grammy Award winner. He's produced my girl, my favorite, Etta James. He's a professor here and chair at Loyola University, New Orleans Music Industry Studies Department. He's an attorney and a trumpet player. Mr. Professor John Snyder. You have many titles. How how did you well, first? Where did you grow up? Who are you? Uh, well, I grew up in North Carolina, and I grew up as a musician. I had a father who made me get up every day at the crack of dawn or before to practice trumpet and piano, and I did that seven days a week for years and years and years, <coughs> and um, and that became that, that became my identity. Wow. So I'm a musician. I love, and I grew up listening to jazz. I, I grew up in the era of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all that, but I didn't listen to that music. I listened to Miles Davis and Count Basie, and and uh, so I mean I don't know where I got that inclination from, but you know I was always into that music, and then easily quick into R&B. So mm. in high school I played an R&B band, and um, we played all over the state, that kind of a three-state region, you know, in the beach towns and all that. So we got to back up all the, the kind of shag music, you know, major lamps and the Tams and the Drifters and the this and the that. So how wait, how old were you at this time? I was fifteen. What? How well, is I think that? I could play trumpet, you know. <laughs> no, you're fifteen and you're going all of these places. How is that? Well, I was the junior man in the group. It was a college band, mm-hmm. and so they treated me like, um, you know, a, a nuisance little brother. That, you know, but. The girl singer in the band, uh, who was uh, 21, I thought she was a, a very old woman. I mean, and, you're 15, uh, right? I was 15, <laughs> so I thought, well, she's so beautiful. But And she protected me, mm-hmm. you know, so well, they'd pick on me and she'd, uh, she'd shoo them away. But, oh, sweet. <laughs> but no, it was fun. It was, um, I learned a lot, you know, just dealing with bands and seeing how things worked. Mm-hmm. And it pushed me into music school. Okay. So I went to music school against my father's wishes, and he really? told me, "Oh yeah, and you can't get a job in that." And I said, "Wait, wait, he yeah, wake you up?" <laughs> that's what I said. I said, "How come you woke me up every day?" He said, "To mm-hmm. keep you off the street." Mm-hmm. I said, "The street, the street. What's wrong with the street?" So, so it was, it was a, 
it was a, a problem that was resolved by my paying my way to college. <laughs> I just earned my way through, and I had scholarships and stuff, because obviously I was a good trumpet player, mm-hmm. so obviously. I had music scholarships. But when I went to law school, we were friends again, so it all worked out. All right. Um, so you were 15, and you're going out. Do you have any other siblings who are with you, or are you the only child? No, I have uh, I had two brothers, and a, all younger, and a sister. And were they musicians? Uh, my, my closest brother was, he was made to play oboe, and uh, became pretty good because he was just really smart, mm-hmm. but he didn't practice it every day. You okay. know, he wasn't really into it. So he didn't become nah, the 15-year-old kind of on this? Oh, okay. And then my younger brother played trumpet, kind of trying to be like me, mm-hmm. which I was uh, always trying to talk him out of, but he was a good player. And uh, got a music music degree like I did from the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister is not a musician. No. Oh. And you said after college, you went to law school. In college, I was recommended by a teacher to go to law school. Mm-hmm. I'd written a paper for a summer school course in criminology. Just, you know, one of those things I wanted to get a credit and get it done. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> she called me out in class. I thought she was going to give on my case, but um, uh, she said, Mr. Snyder, I want to see you after class. Uh-oh. And so I got, I went there, and she said, your paper was excellent. I'm giving you an A+. Plus. You should go to law school. Mm. And I said, yeah, I don't want an A+, plus and I don't want to go to law school. <laughs> and she said, you should check it out. So I did, and... Um, in those days, the, all the law schools were white, male, political science oh, majors. And so I didn't really fit into that mold. Uh-huh. And believe it or not, I represented diversity in my law school. How class. so? I was the only musician and the only guy that had long hair and didn't wear a tie. Wow. Because in those days, everybody wore a coat. <laughs> and uh, I just wasn't going to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was kind of always the outcast, not the outcast, because it wasn't, I wasn't cast out, but... Just the outsider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, because, you know, I, I've told you many times, you're like a mentor to me. Well, not like, you are a mentor. <laughs> um, I went to law school, and now major I, there are different majors in law school. So I can't necessarily say that I was an outcast. I did not meet any other singers, but definitely not just political science or... Yeah you know, the normal whatever it was back then. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have gigs on the weekend, and I would, I'd be playing the gig and reading flashcards for the test on oh. Monday. My bandmates thought I was crazy. I, 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 can you do that? And I said, well, I know the music. Mm-hmm. Music I don't have to really worry about, but this cases, I'm a little bit shaky. shaky. Wow. <laughs> See, I had a totally different experience. Um, I actually didn't get back into music until like my third year and then I really didn't care about law school anymore I was like please can I just get out of school sure Uh, I know about torts I know all of that can I just take my test and just sing wow that is kind of crazy well I kind of I started off being disappointed in law school because it seemed like a a brainwashing thing and Mm -hmm. um And then I re- realized that it was a brainwashing. <laughs> that was the whole point. Learn how to think analytically. Mm-hmm. And you do that by briefing cases, you know, 50 times a night. Yeah. And so you get good at it. And it wasn't until my second year that I actually 
developed a real affinity for it. And it wasn't until my third year that I developed a philosophical appreciation of it. Mm. That um, that essentially we were representatives of the justice system, mm-hmm. which you know I came to think of as a sacrament that uh, the society says to somebody who is not participating in maybe the best way that uh, they they call it out. They they try to help. They, they try to they try to to give the, the, the sacrament of justice. Now, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, if you go to court and you sit there and you watch how it works, it's kind of a factory of, of sadness. And, um, but behind that factory of sadness is this philosophy of, of justice, of the, uh, the, the need for a society to have a structure and a, um, uh, a system that allows people to kind of obey the same rules mm-hmm. and be able to coexist in the in the face of diversity and in the face of disagreement mm-hmm. in the face of different priorities um, but nevertheless we still live under the same system of laws and everybody's entitled to their to their rights and then I became a real fan of uh, constitutional law and and came to understand that what caused this country to be great was the way we treated the individual, the mm-hmm. way we prized the individual, the way we protected the individual, exactly. the rights that we gave the individual. And then that led me to copyright and those 21 words in the Constitution that created intellectual property, including patent and trademark and copyright. Mm-hmm. And from those 20, 27, I think 27 words, there's... There comes copyright. I mean, this huge economic consequence, mm-hmm. and also what other jobs are protected in the Constitution other than the president and vice president? The creative person is protected. Mm-hmm. The inventor, the author, the person who makes something that's that's new, that's original. Everything's based on something else, but there's an original point of view. Mm-hmm. And if you can, if it's an original um, creation and it's tangible. Uh, copyright attaches in that moment in time, and bam, you're a music publisher just because you wrote "Baby, I Love You." Mm-hmm. And so that's that's amazing to me that that the empowerment of the creative person to have a monopoly of their creative work for a period of time. And in those days, it was 14 years. It's now it's 70 years after your death. So mm-hmm. essentially, it's for you. It's forever. Right. And uh, so you own what you create, and only you can monetize it unless you allow somebody else to do it and give them your rights or transfer your rights in writing. Mm -hmm. So musicians come into this world as creative people that have this incredible power. Number one, they're naturally, they have the traits of an entrepreneur. I won't say they're entrepreneurial. I would just say that that they they don't want to work with somebody else. They can solve problems. They Mm -hmm. can innovate. They can take a risk. They can communicate. They're stubborn. They don't take no for an answer. They have original ideas. I mean, they are remarkable in every way, even though they might not be thought of like that. Mm-hmm. They also have a methodology for improving every day. It's called practicing. Yes. This will make you a better law school student mm-hmm. or a better anything because most of the people, uh, even in my generation, couldn't sit still for four hours. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, it's just difficult. As a trumpet player, I sat still for four hours many, many occasions trying to figure out how to make this thing, this piece of pipe, mm-hmm. make music. And, uh, and it was like an endless challenge, 100% every time. And so you could see yourself make progress. You could hear it, and so could everybody else. Mm-hmm. So practicing makes per- perfect for sure. I mean, you know, the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. Mm-hmm. 
And so musicians have that. Then they have this ability to make wealth out of their imagination mm-hmm. thanks to copyright. And, uh, and so my question is, what's holding you back? Hmm. You have, you're naturally entrepreneurial. You can make wealth out of your imagination. You have a methodology for improving every day, for innovating, which is the key to success in everything. So you have this naturally. And so what, what are you missing? You're missing the business. You don't know how to monetize your passion for music or for art or whatever that creative thing that you do. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can't just make money with the horn in your mouth. You have to be able to do a number of different things. Right. So if you have to have a website to share your music with others, then you have to be able to build it. If you have to make a video to promote your music, you have to be able to produce it. Mm-hmm. You have to do this, and you can. You can take your iPhone right now and make a video. It may not be great, mm-hmm. and it's linear and all that, but you've got, you've got, you've got these tools that allow these this this communication. And now, thanks to this big bad wolf we call the internet, everybody can create content and everybody can share it. Mm-hmm. So it took that away from the major companies. Now, the major companies used to be the sole gatekeeper for content creation and for its distribution, and now they are neither. So naturally, they had to shift into other areas, mm-hmm. and, um, and they have with these 360 deals and other things. But the important thing for musicians to realize is when they make a record deal, they are transferring their rights to that company. It is their rights, and so you should not let that company write the contract for the transference of your property. You'd be like, you were going to sell your house, but you'd let the buyer write the contract for the sale of your house. You would not do that. That would be considered to be stupid. So why do you do it with your songs? Because you're stupid. Do you hear that? (laughs) Connectors out there, do you hear that? This is a lot of wisdom that (laughs) Professor Snyder is dropping right now. I hope you are listening. Professor... So you developed this affinity for the law, and you are this genius musician. What was your first job after college, after either undergrad or law school? Well, I went right into law school after, um, after college. I had a band in college called the 11th Hour, and we, uh, we were lucky enough to get on uh, tours on, um, for the uh, military, uh, the people that supplied food, liquor, and entertainment to all the Navy clubs around the world mm-hmm. hired us to go be an all-American troop and oh. enter, entertain in all the enlistment clubs, officer clubs, and uh, chief petty officer clubs. And so all these people had different musics. Mm-hmm. Enlisted men wanted rock and roll. The petty, chief petty officers wanted country music, and the officers wanted slow dance and bossa novas and whatever. Mm-hmm. So we could play all the country club music because we made that money, and that's how we made money in college. Uh-huh. You know, and then at that time, the 60s, there was no kid clubs in where I was. And so you played for the adults, and you played their music. Mm-hmm. Okay, you pay, wear a tie, they pay you well. And so we, we did pretty well in co- college. I mean, like I said, I paid my way through. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, and then after, when I went to law school, I kept playing music, um, but uh, at, at the end of my, like, the beginning of my third year, I started freaking out, now what? Mm-hmm. Like, what did I do this for? I don't want to do this. I'm a musician. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't like interviews with law or I didn't like the insurance companies. I didn't like the banks at all. And so I think, now what am I going to do? And so I always wanted to live in New York. I'd, I'd grown up, I'm 10 years old, I wanted to be in New York. And uh, I don't know why. I think it had something to do with the television. Wow. <clears throat> and um, there was a show in those days called The Naked City. Mm-hmm. It was a detective story, and they'd open up with this scene of, uh, of New York City at night. 
I just thought that was so awesome. All those buildings and all those lights, and I just could not believe Aww. it. I wanted to be there so bad. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. And so, uh, you know, I went and I uh, finally got up there in college, and, you know, I was convinced I was going to spend my life there. Mm-hmm. And then after law school, or before law school, my third year was over, I wrote all the law firms in New York City that had entertainment law in their, in their description in the Martindale Hubble. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was 74 letters mm-hmm. that I sent out. And I sent one to one record producer, um, Creed Taylor, at CTI Records, because I owned all of his records, and his address was on the back of the records, and Smart. what the hell, sent him a letter. Right. He wrote me back, and, wow. um, and I got five responses from the law firms. But he said, you know, I had, so I was a musician and I was a lawyer, mm-hmm. and that was a pretty rare bird in those days. And so he said, well, that's an interesting combination. If you're ever in New York, come see me. Wow. I thought, well, what do you mean? I don't, I don't really habituate. <laughs> so I, uh, I said, I'll just come see you. So I drove up there and uh, I saw some law firms, which I hated. And, um, and then I, I went to see him, and he had these beautiful offices on number the 27th floor, number one Rockefeller Plaza. I were looking at wow. the skating rink and all that, and it was like, and they were highly decorated. They were, didn't look like offices to me. And, um, <clears throat> and so, um, I mean, like when they showed me into his office, it was a corner office, and he had this big round marble table. There was no drawers, and I mm-hmm. said, I wonder where he puts everything. And that carpet was two inches thick, and the walls were padded, and the sound system was awesome with the Macintosh, everything. Wow. It was just like, oh, my God. And I actually, I thought when I walked in the room, I thought, this is what heaven looks like. Wow. Because he, the sun was shining from the back, and his graying temples, and his velour white. And how old are you? Uh, I was 22, whatever, what? 24. And uh, so I was Young. like, <laughs> yeah, living. I mean, just out of, I'm not even out of law school yet. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so... Uh, uh, he hired me after two hours he asked me who I would sign and I told him and he said well if we're going to sign him we wouldn't sign him and we're making a distribution deal with him so good and then he asked me other questions and I, he said how much is Wall Street paying and I told him he said I can pay that and I thought holy crap I said are you hiring me he said yes I'm hiring you what do you think all this is about and I said well <laughs> so I remember when I, I was taking the elevator back down after the meeting and um, I had tears in my eyes because I was oh, so happy. Aww. And everybody was saying, are you all right? Is everything... <laughs> yeah, I'm happy. So, um, you know, I went, ended up going there and um, working there. And, and it was a PhD in the music business. Mm-hmm. I learned, I eventually did every job. Um, I was going around the world making licensing, licensing deals, going around the country making distribution deals, you know, signing artists, picking out songs. Uh, I did marketing. I did, I did every job. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was, um, it, was, it was an amazing experience. It's something that you couldn't have today because you're, you go into a company today, you're going to do one thing, maybe yeah. two, but you're not going to do everything. I can imagine. So it was only because he made some bad decisions and all wow. the VPs started leaving and he didn't have anybody to rely on but me. And wow. so he had a few others. But I was young, and so mm-hmm. I didn't care about money. I didn't care about time. I was, I was, I'd work 24-7. I did not care. It was like I was so excited to be there. And, um, and you know, I think he appreciated that enthusiasm mm-hmm. and not just complete dedication. Wow. So, I, you know, it lasted a few years, and he finally went out of business. But, mm-hmm. um, and then I made friends with John Hammond, the great John Hammond, and he became my mentor. And talk about lucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's a guy that discovered Billie Holiday, Cal Basie, Benny Goodman, Bob Dylan, wow. Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Ray Vaughan, George Benson, 
I mean, the list goes goodness. on and on. And he was the great grandson, great grandson of Cordelius Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. So it came from this this money world that was like phenomenal. Jeez. And he was always spending his time in Harlem. Mm-hmm. So he was not. <coughs> he was a different dude. He was one of the co-founders of the NC, uh, NAAC, no, NCAA, no, NAACP and also ACLU. Mm-hmm. He was actually at the Scottsboro trial in Alabama back wow. in the 20s. And so he was quite the guy, very progressive. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Vinnie Goodman was the first jazz musician to put a black artist in his band, and John Hammond was behind that. Because wow. John was all about it. You know, egalitarian. You know, uh, equality. I mean, he was he was the man. And, and this so, is like probably right up your alley, oh, being yeah. the jazz musician you are. Oh yeah. I mean, I never. I I, I didn't. I grew up in a racist community, <clears throat> but I I learned at the age a very young age what that was about. Mm-hmm. And I'll skip the story, but I'll just say that I knew what was going on before I went to first grade. Wow. So it was, uh, I was always different uh, in that sense. And uh, so <clears throat> I didn't see that I, I, my, my heroes were all African American. Mm-hmm. And so it was, uh, it was a, a little bit different for me growing up. But um, how, how was it? You know, it was just, uh, you have to challenge the, 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 the meanness of, of racism. And uh, and one thing, the way I did it was initially just like, why? Mm-hmm. What, why are you saying that? Why are you talking like that? What's what's wrong? Why? I don't understand. Because I didn't understand. And uh, uh, and then I realized that it was a it was a cultural historical thing that, and my grandmother, who loved me dearly and who I loved uh, more than anything, with the way she would talk about um, black people was unacceptable. Mm-hmm. But I realized it when I was in college with her, and I'd, I had a band we were taking overseas, and um, half the guys in the band were black. And so, um, you know, I got a lot of pushback, and I, I didn't really understand from uh, from the community, family, and friends. And and my grandmother, um, you know, took me out in her rose garden and walked me through it and put her arm around my shoulder, which she could barely reach at that point. She said, son, now I know they're giving you a lot of trouble about them niggers you've taken over yonder, but you just do what you think is right. Mm-hmm. And I thought then, isn't that interesting? She's, this, this is not going to go away until my great-grandchildren have left this earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, what is it going to take to end this? And uh, I, don't, I, I was just like, wow, that's so deep. She thinks she's being kind and generous, but right. the way she's talking is... It's the opposite of that, right. and so it's kind of like wow. So it, it made me understand that this, there's there's no that there's there's I don't know that there's <clears throat> there's just things that are stuck, and they need to be unstuck. And and you know the only way I can see that is for people to speak and and fight and argue and and demand and seek and require and you know they you just have to you have to go after it you can't wait for it you can't wait for the change you have to bring you have to be the agent of change well, who was it said be the change you want to see in the world exactly so go do it you know exactly. and you don't do it by yelling at somebody or saying grandmother you're such a racist mm-hmm. you do it by the way you live your life mm-hmm. the way you 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 deal with your children 
the way you deal with your friends, mm -hmm. what you will tolerate, what you want, what you will, will call out, what you will be silent about. Who are you? Right. You know, what do you stand for? What do you believe in? And so that's what it made me confront, mm -hmm. you know, at a very early age. And so I, I made my choice. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not one of them. <clears throat> and so um, uh, it, it, it's still an ongoing battle, but um, it's changing and it's changed to be sure, but we have such a long way to go. Mm -hmm. um, everybody hates somebody. Right. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's got to that's stop. Yeah. <clears throat> and music is the way to do it. I think music transcends that, transcends differences. It, uh, it, it has the capacity of creating aesthetic moments where people are, have been elevated into almost a second sight where they, they're completely removed from all the, their thoughts and prejudices and current troubles and woes. They've, they've been elevated. And it may not last for long. And these moments can just disappear like that. But the fact that they actually happen at all mm -hmm. is what's so awesome. And we've all heard, heard it. You know, it happens in sporting events, too, where something is so awesome, it's like everybody's like, what? Yeah. And, uh, but the same thing happens in music. Mm -hmm. And a, a great artist can, can sustain that. I believe so. Can take you to, to that spot and, and change you and then gently bring you back down mm -hmm. and then leave you off and good night, good luck. And so that's like, yeah, you're different. You mm -hmm. left there different than you came in. Yeah. Um, you and an, you were an A and R person, correct? Yeah. Um, what makes um, an artist um, the cream of the crop? They have talent, and they have the ability to sustain it. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of people that are talented that cannot sustain it. They don't have what it takes. They don't have the work ethic. They don't have the mental capacity. They don't have the emotional stability. They don't have the the complete dedication. Uh, to that, to that art, <clears throat> which means to the people who are going to consume it. Mm -hmm. So it's not just good enough to be great. You have to have those other intangible qualities. Uh, is this person somebody who's got what it takes to sustain? And the, you want to say for the long term, but there's no real long term in the sense of a, a an artist's life because generally that has a uh, a shorter term and you've got to then change from there and the jazz world you can kind of be the same forever mm -hmm. you can be an 80 year old jazz trumpet player and and still playing and still doing fine mm -hmm. but that's not true for an athlete per se right it's not true for all musicians either but still there is a there is a longevity to the potential um, there's a potential longevity to the action that um, that can, you know can give you a creative life Mm -hmm. And I think if we have more musicians and creative people in this world who are making a living doing what they're doing or engaged in what they, what they're, in their creative act, we're going to have more peace. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can fight and shoot and kill and hate if you're playing music or you're engaging in some creative, collaborative activity. So that, to me, is the main thing. It's like, that's why I want more musicians and more artists in this world creating and sustaining themselves. And that's why we try to show them how to make a living doing it. Mm -hmm. How do you monetize your passion for what you love, mm -hmm. for your for music, or for art, or for whatever? I mean, it's a, it's a constitutional right. It's given to you and not to anybody else. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, you have this awesome potential and not only to change people's lives, to move people in a positive way, but maybe to change the world. And it's, it sounds like a big concept, except when you think just for just one second of the 50 people you know who've done that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Etta James, you mentioned, short, certainly, you know, you can't get married without going through Etta James. Right. So it's kind of like, whoa, how'd that happen? And then the same with all these other artists that we know. And I grew up in the classical tradition, so I'm, I'm all about it. I mean, um, I love Mozart. I mean, I love opera. I love, but I also love Aretha, and I also love Ray Charles. I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's all about uh, the same kind of feelings. I mean, if I hear, you know, a great opera, or Pavarotti or somebody who I've barely seen or heard sing many times, Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa. And then the, it's just transcendent. It's like mm-hmm. you can't believe what you're listening to. And um, so it's the same with those other artists. I mean, you, you just can't believe it. And uh, so I want more of those. Mm-hmm. You know, I want, I want to make it possible for more people to survive. And in the record business, also, people get hurt every day. Mm-hmm. They got taken advantage of. They got ripped off. They got disrespected. They got abused. They got subjected to abuse. I mean, it was... Um, it was not not good, and uh, and and I and I just thought it was wrong, and so I tried. I started my own company uh, when I was twenty eight, twenty nine, and and it had the the we were here to serve artists. Mm-hmm. We we're not this here. This is Artist House. Yeah. Okay. And um, I got that from Ornette, because I worked closely with Ornette Coleman for a long time and managed him, and he changed my life completely. And um, he made me a super creative person, and um, and and gave me an understanding of music that I didn't have before. And uh, I, I was more traditional in the sense, if you can call jazz traditional. When I went mm-hmm. to college, jazz was looked looked down upon. Like you cannot play jazz; it will ruin your embouchure. Wow. Those jazz and classical music are incom they, they don't matter. You can't have them in the same place. You know? mm-hmm. They're incompatible. And so naturally, I attacked that and. Um, now at that same university, they have the Miles Davis Institute for Jazz. So you wait wow. long enough. If you if you change if you're an agent it. for change and you wait long enough, it will change. You yes. will see it change. Wow. Um, and you are also the chair here at Loyola of the Music <clears throat> Industries Department. Yeah, we now since we just added film, we call it the Department of Film and Music Industry Studies. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow, so much has changed since I graduated in 2010. Wow. Well, we it's 2015 as we're speaking, and in that period, I've been able to build a popular commercial music program by just gradually adding courses, and then they get oversold and people want them, and they say, mm-hmm. oh, well, maybe there's a degree here. Mm-hmm. So uh, the same with the film thing. That started 10 years ago for me. When I first got here, I started bringing in video because I knew then it's not about music anymore. It's about right. everything. It's all about communication and all the tools that you can in your toolbox to, to manifest that communication and certainly video was clearly that long before 2004 when I got here so it was it's just in, in this city and in this university it's a little bit behind mm-hmm. so we're your city is catching up a little bit it's because of the film business and there's more younger people moving in and this and that but the, the university is still lagging a little bit and it's um, attempt to enter the 20th century. Hmm. Uh, 
we'll, I'm just trying to get to the 20th. We'll get to the 21st later. But, but uh, you know, change is, is not easy. But as Aristotle said, ch- change is sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, change in it all is. things is sweet. So it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a constant need to improve and innovate and, and, um, and look for the things that are not there. Look for the things that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like, Ornette taught me not to push the same button twice. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't repeat it, change it. And uh, so I've always tried to live by that. Hmm. So how was it going from like the entertainment world to both the entertainment and academia world? Uh, shocking. I mean, um, it's still shocking. <laughs> I mean, I've been here for 11 years now, and it's just, it's, I'm used to it. I understand it. I have an appreciation for it. I also have an awareness of it uh, that tells me this is an old-fashioned concept that needs to be changed in almost every single way. Mm-hmm. And so what a challenge, you know, but what an opportunity. I mean, the future is on parade in my office every day. Mm-hmm. I'm surrounded by the most amazing young people. And uh, people that are my age, uh, in their 60s, they're, they're, they don't have 18-year-olds coming up to them asking what they think. Mm-hmm. Their own kids don't care what they think. So, I mean, I got hundreds of kids asking me every day, what do you think about this, or what about that, or how do you do that? And so they want my opinion and my advice, and so that is not going to last forever. Mm-hmm. So while I have it, I'm going to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. So whenever you need something from me, I don't care when, what time, I don't care what day, I don't care anything. You call me, and I'm going to help you get it. Wow. And I'm not going to judge you either. Mm-hmm. So... If you've done something you shouldn't have done and you need some advice or help or, you know, I'm a lawyer, I'm, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> I'm going to help you. Mm-hmm. I think that will cause you to change. If somebody, if, you, if, if people care about each other and they're trying to help you, then you're going to respond to that. People are going to respond to that. Um, there's not enough of that. In fact, if there's one thing in the program that I will not forgive or not allow is unkindness. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I mean, if you want to smoke pot, I don't. That's your problem. It just means you're not going to get enough done. You're not going to get done all the things you want done. But whatever, do what you got to do. But, but if you're unkind to somebody, no. And I don't mean just aggressive. I mean like you know, unkindness is like saying an unkind word, an unkind look, or an unkind thought. Even, I mean, you're not supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I mean, that's the way, it's a little bit simplistic, but that, that's the way, that's my, that's the guiding principle for me. And if you see something needs doing, do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't wait for somebody to tell you. I live two blocks from here. This is my neighborhood. If I'm walking home and I see trash on the street, I pick it up. It's not my trash, it's my street. Mm-hmm. We don't have a trash person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got to do what's, what, what's in front of you to do. And the same thing, I think these kids need to know that. And the opportunities are phenomenal. And think mm-hmm. of the luxury of the life that we have. I mean, most people in this world are, are trying to just live. Mm-hmm. How just a roof and food. And here we are with all these choices and this luxury of choice and opportunity. It's quite fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it's often taken for granted. And so wake up. Wake mm-hmm. up to the fact that you have a life. It's a very short life. And it seems like forever when you're 20, but it is mm-hmm. not forever. And uh, and so make the best of it. Make good choices. Help other people. 
find something you want to do, get good at it, and use it to help other people. That's a word. Yeah. Um, just looking back at the program, I see your vision and I appreciate your vision for artists like myself and the other 100 to how many kids, 800 kids who come through your office. I see um, that you've thought about us as artists and that need to survive. And I think this program, what you have created for us, is a way for artists to survive. Like you were saying, not just we can sing, sure, but how as an artist, you know, can we sustain ourselves from the business, from the copyright side to the writing side, all around, I just have to tell you, I appreciate your vision for us. Oh, well, you're welcome. I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. And uh, more and more of these programs are growing, uh, growing up in the country in different university settings. Um, and I have a great faculty that's completely dedicated to, this, to these ideas. Um, but, no, it's, it's a necessary thing. And mm -hmm. it's not just an altruistic proposition. It's a very, much, very much an economic proposition. I mean, all the communities in this country that do well have a strong creative community. Mm -hmm. And uh, even this city is a good example. I mean, we're in like the top creative city in the country now, according to certain mm -hmm. you know polls and writings and stuff. And also, and stock top in entrepreneurial city. Now, mm -hmm. the hurricane of ten years ago had an effect; it's still having an effect. We're not done yet. It's going to be another ten years before we rebuild this place. But uh, it's created great opportunity, and it's also attracted people to come in who are entrepreneurial. And they're also iconoclastic. You can come here and paint yourself green, and nobody's going to think. They mm. may say, hey, dude, that's a nice color. Mm -hmm. But nobody's going to think you're weird. That's true. Because everybody's weird. Yeah. So it's not the question of weird. It's a question of who are you? Where are you at? What do you, what do, you do? You know, what do you play? What do you, where do you like to eat? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's a different scene down here. It took mm -hmm. me a while to get used to it, but I'm used to it now. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Um, you've lived and had such a vibrant life. Um, you've met so many people. You have five Grammys. What's your vision for yourself for the next five years? Well, first of all, those Grammys, <clears throat> I mean, I'm a jazz music producer, R&B, blues, gospel. I've had nominations in all those areas in traditional pop, but it's not me personally, it's mm -hmm. the record. So the, there's no jazz producer Grammy, mm. but uh, the producer gets a Grammy along with the artist who, you know, whose record you produced. Mm -hmm. So I just want to clarify that. Um, but uh, Such a, you're a humble man. No, I mean, it's it's not it's the record, mm -hmm. and, and I, I I'm not going to back off from my contribution to the record. But that's a different art right there, and it's an art of collaborative art. Now I'm not the musician. I'm a musician, but I'm not the. I'm not Quincy Jones. I'm going to go in there and tell you what to do, mm -hmm. and say why don't you do this. I mean, I make suggestions, but basically, I'm listening, and I want there to be. I want. The, I want the. I'm the first audience. Producers are the first audience. They get to. It's almost like a, a fantasy thing. You can you can close your eyes and listen to the music as if it were happening in your speakers in your in your your library room, whatever, and. Um, and then open your eyes and say, "Mr. Bass Player, that was really nice." But when you when we go to the to the um, to the second verse, how about walking? You know, mm. or Mr. Drummer, when, when you when you when you go into the solo, how about changing to the rhythm? You know, I mean, mm. obviously obvious things, but um, 
you have to have a trusting relationship with musicians to be able to make suggestions to them. And the way I do it in a recording situation is I listen, and then I pick out something that they did well. Every player, you just listen. You'll hear. You can tell. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you go up to them and, and and personally, just you know, not making a big production of it, pushing the talk back button and sharing it with the world. You just Hey, dude, that thing you did when you went into the hi hat, hit it, bang, like that, that was so cool. Mm-hmm. And so you just say something that they, like, oh, thanks, man. And so they, they see that you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. And then they'll respect your attitude, your, what you say. Mm-hmm. But if you go in there just telling them stuff, mm-hmm. you know, they'll do it because you're paying them, but they're not going to like it. Mm-hmm. And so what you're trying to do is to, to encourage them to give what they've got. Mm. It's not my vision, it's your vision. You be you. And so the job as a producer is to try to create the environment where everybody can go beyond what they're usually what they think, what they know they can do. Right. Any professional can put the butt push the professional button and be professional. Mm-hmm. But it's another thing to be creative and 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 create something that even you you're surprised, whoa, that was awesome. Yeah. You know, and that's kinda like the curse of the artist is that those moments can't be completely controlled. You know, you can, as a professional, you can get to a certain level, but there's going to be some nights that are so awesome. It's like, how the hell did that happen? Mm-hmm. And then you maybe even get a little bummed out about it. It's like, Jesus, I can't do that every night. Mm-hmm. But that's that's true. You can't, but you can do it sometimes. Right. And and every chance you, if you try, you go as far as you as far as you can. You might just get there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so. And besides that, you're going to create an aesthetic moment and a memory in somebody else's life, even if you don't get to that high peak, mm-hmm. because your just general method is already so awesome that most people can't even believe it. And they're just oh. overwhelmed by it. Etta could make, could be great every night, mm-hmm. but she was happy every night. Mm-hmm. So when she was happy and great, then you got something like, whoa, Etta, wow. that's more Etta than Etta. And... Um, uh, you know, that's, that's, those moments are not common. But that's what we all look for. Mm-hmm. I have so many other questions to ask you, but I understand your time is very limited. So one more question. Um, what would be advice? Um, you've given us so many words of wisdom throughout this interview. If there is one thing that you could tell your younger self, what would you tell yourself? What advice would you give yourself? Work harder. Um, I was a pretty hard worker. That was that was my really my differential. I'm not that smart. I'm not that talented, but I can definitely put in the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, but there was still a lot of times I could have done better, and a lot of periods I could have done better. So I would say, um, wake up to the fact that you're alive and it's a joyous world, and the things that are wrong with it can be fixed mm-hmm. and um, can be challenged, can be, can be changed. And um, so that's, 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 I would just say, be more grateful for the opportunities that you have and be more hardworking to get the opportunities you don't have. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, it's it's 2.27. You have to go to class 2.30? I do have a 2.30 class. Okay. All right, Professor Snyder. Is there any um, place where our connectors can connect with you? Well, um, uh, I have a website, artisthousemusic.org, and that's artist, plural, A-R-T-I-S-T-S, 
the 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 university site that I built for our department is called the creative it's called creativeprofessions.org. Um, my Gmail is John N Snyder at Gmail. That's J O H N N S N Y D E R Gmail. I like to help musicians. Um, I can't negotiate all your contracts for you, but I can tell you what I think of it, and I can also introduce you to somebody maybe who could help you. But the point is, ask for help when you need it, mm-hmm. and don't don't worry about rejection. I mean. Artists and musicians are always dealing with that, but the fact is you just have to be resilient and keep believing and don't give up and go for it. Just do it. All right. Well, you heard it from the man himself, Professor John Snyder. All right, connectors, stay connected.